0: And uh, in the Advent, we celebrate the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ as he became a man. We think back to Christ's first coming, and that sets us in tremendous anticipation of his second. It's not only a time when we look back historically, but we look forward with great anticipation. And so for the four weeks of the Advent season, we will be exploring our need and God's promise and God's plan And God's announcement for centuries in church history, the Advent season and the teaching would begin in darkness and move in a progression intentionally toward celebration of great light. And so our text for this morning, we move to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, the first 13 verses. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with them in their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, rather go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. You may wonder how in the world does a text like this get us in a Christmassy mood? Or would we possibly pick a text like this one? Wouldn't it be better if we just followed the Home Sense liturgy? And that on October 31st, there's cobwebs everywhere, and then on November 1st, you just pop the clutch on Christmas cheer, and there's just lights, and it's just going to be two months of nonstop Christmas music. Wouldn't that be better? But you see, in the same way that the brilliance of a diamond is truly showcased as it's put against the backdrop of a black cloth, the deep richness of our Christian faith is really seen when we're willing to look with real honesty at the darkness. The darkness that is the challenge of being human. The darkness that is the short and difficult thing that it is to uh, live in this world of ours. It is broken in many ways and to be very honest about it and to look at it. Our Anglican friends have a great tradition in their uh, church uh, history where the first Advent Sunday is in darkness and then as they move towards Christmas they'll light a candle until at Christmas things are brought into full light. As a picture of seeing uh, the anticipation of uh, coming from darkness and into light from the Death to certain salvation. And so, in this teaching of Jesus, when Jesus gives this parable about the bridesmaids, he uses that language of uh, virgins because it immediately uh, let uh, all the original readers know that uh, all of these women were young and unmarried. And so, it's a picture of these bridesmaids, the bridal party. And as Jesus is uh, giving this, um, uh, this parable, he sets it in great darkness. And then there's light that breaks forth out of the darkness. So we want to consider these things uh, this morning. When we're considering all of the parables and teachings of Jesus, they're poetic ways of conveying truth and conveying teaching. And a good way to approach all parables is to not press every single detail to... Uh, too strongly because that's not the intention of that metaphor of teaching style for as many characters as, as there are there's a there's a teaching to be had and for as many images as there are there's a teaching to be had so we're going to consider this morning that we are the bridal party and that's what's intended here in this teaching that Jesus clearly is the bridegroom who's coming we're headed into a tremendous celebration and in order to enter into the tremendous celebration there's got to be a readiness and that rightedness is based on something. Uh, but it all takes place in a dark that is so thick. In the ancient world, in a world without electricity, where you can't see your hand in front of your face, darkness in the ancient world was dangerous. You didn't go out in the dark. Um, you certainly wouldn't go out without light in the dark. And so Jesus sets this whole uh, teaching in great darkness. We're going to explore it this morning. A uh, few things we want to consider. Firstly, the weariness, secondly, the fuel, and thirdly, the light. So let's begin with the weariness. This begins with uh, us, I think, needing to examine the weariness that comes in darkness. The weariness in the darkness, this is the human condition that we tire. Um, It's tempting to immediately jump to ideas like saying, well, hold on, let's not be negative. It's not that bad. There's lots of great things in the world and sort of have a high, uh, you know, Higher anthropology of the human condition, but we really need to just sit in the anthropology that Jesus gives, which is utter darkness. And it's not to say that there isn't beauty in the world, because of course God created all things and we can find beauty uh, in many, many places. But Jesus wants us to just not just jump to the light and sit in this darkness and realize that when you're in the darkness for a prolonged period of time, you get tired, you get weary. And it's important also to notice that in the teaching that Jesus gives, it's not that the, the wise are, you know, eyes wide open with you know all through the night and they're just in this perpetual state of blessed cheer, and the fools fall asleep. They all fall asleep. We all get weary, we all get tired when a promise is delayed. This is a picture of people anticipating and waiting for the bridegroom but he's so delayed they fall asleep. You can, be, you can have anticipation for something and have that anticipation quickly flip to frustration if you have to wait long enough. And if you're, the situation you're in is darkness. All throughout the Old Testament you have this image of the children of Israel unable to wait, unable to trust, unable to turn to God. They get weary in the darkness. They go chase after other gods. They do a myriad of other things. The, the darkness weighs on us. And so... This is where this whole parable uh, begins. Even think, uh, as I was considering this, this teaching, of our desire to be delivered from this darkness so quickly. But I, I think it's not just us as moderns, though it's probably accentuated for us just because of the pace of our life here in the modern West. But I think that for the children of God, God it's always been a challenge uh, to trust in God and to wait on God. Rather than all of our prayers just kind of sound like, tomorrow would be good, Lord. We wake up and we're sick. Heal me now, oh God, if you would. We find ourselves in, in a financial need. Oh God, provide a job for me tomorrow. This, I mean, we might not use that kind of language. Lord, heal me in the next 10 minutes. Lord, provide, me for a, provide a job in 24 hours. Light my path and show me my next step. By next Thursday would be great. But there's like such an immediacy with which we relate to God. Not like He's a loving Heavenly Father sovereignly provide, presiding over our lives, so much as like this divine genie, some sort of a slot machine that responds to uh, lever pulls. Sometimes we can relate to God in that way, entire in the darkness. And so, it's pr- pr- provocative, I think. I think of the children of Israel who, uh, there's a very famous passage if you've been in church for any length of time you'll have heard this if you're new this morning exploring christian faith this is going to be new but there is a prophecy in the book of jeremiah where god is assuring his people that he's going to he's going to uh save them out of this dire situation slavery in babylon and a prophecy comes and the prophecy is this for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a future and a hope and there was a, a false prophet who showed up around that same time who said to the children of Israel, God talked to me and he said in two years we're going to be delivered. And Jeremiah was like, well, that'd be great, but it's probably going to be 70. And it was 70. But, but the, the, false, the, the, the voice of the false prophets was like, don't worry, this, this darkness, it's going to be over, guys. It's going to be over. See, the problem with having a silver lining theology, hey, don't worry, you're going through a dark time. It's going to turn around next week. Just stay positive. Just stay positive. Just keep trusting God. It's going to be good. It's going to turn around. As you hitch your soul to circumstance like it is your savior, and then when the circumstance doesn't change, and the doctor gives you the exact same report, or the economy doesn't change, or the or uh, or a myriad of other things don't change, we, we find ourselves volatile and tired and sleeping in the darkness. Because the darkness can be very wearying and very overwhelming when things don't change. And so God knows our frailty. He knows uh, that we need fuel for the dark. There's a lot of similarities in the 1st century as there are in the 21st century. This was a role of oppression and sickness and disease. Wheels off greed. Staggering racism. Backdrop of brokenness. Staggering, you know, sort of folks clamoring for clout and social status in the city. And wealth and meaning and joy. And having people hear their name and saying, wow, this is the ancient world. This is... Not unlike our world today. If you're here this morning and you're agnostic and you're considering things and you're exploring Christian faith, you know, there is actually some common ground here between us as uh, people of Christian faith and yourself as an agnostic. And the common ground is we both know the world is not okay. We might have different uh, musings about why it's not okay or the root cause underneath the activity of why it's not okay, but we would agree that. The world is not okay. We can find beauty, but there is also this undeniable darkness. We can find bright spots of generosity and love and selflessness and sacrifice in humanity from people of all kinds of faiths or no faith. I mean, we can find that. But sadly, there is this undeniable catalog of wrongs that have always marred humanity. It is our condition. Of darkness that for every person who wakes up in the morning and says, Let's just nudge the world in a more loving direction, someone else wakes up and says, drop the bombs. I mean it just this is always been the human condition. In many ways we we fancy ourselves advanced. But at the core, we, 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 we still struggle and grapple, despite all of our technological advancement, the, the wondrous advances of science and of education and all of these things, despite many things that can be, I think, affirmed, at the core, the exact same staggering, sad problems of humanity that existed in the ancient world can still be found today, every single one of them. So what is the undergirding problem of this darkness. We don't know how to atone for it. And uh, so we know, regardless of our faith position this morning, the, the world is not okay. And so when the calendar goes from October 31st to November 1st, and then we find ourselves in this crazy jingle-jangle whiplash of mandated cultural cheer, strongly motivated by a culture of consumerism, wheels-off consumerism that we live in, This can be very difficult for many people who struggle with the darkness, struggle with darkness in their mental health, struggle with the darkness of their situation, struggle with the darkness of a body that is not responding, that is not getting stronger. The situation is not changing. It's not going to change. But there's sort of this cultural mandate of, okay, the, we're just going to look at the clock now. And, and it's going to be like this for a month and just get used to it. And it's like, wow. I mean, there's, gotta, there's something not honest about this. So there's this weariness in the darkness that God knows and he wants to uh, provide for us so that we do not live our lives grappling for a sense of meaning and hope, in the darkness, and I'm not um, condoning that we become a a church community of a bunch of scrooges that just go into the city and we just sneer and ah, Christmas cheer. That's not my goal here. My pastoral goal is not to make us sad. It's to make us sober. Because uh, we don't want to brood around in the dark, but we also don't want to have a buddy-the-elf theology that's just devoid of a richness and a depth that provides resilience in the soul of someone in a circumstance that's not going to turn around. Now, I'm speaking to us as believers, so I mean in these seats. We don't need to have a silver lining Buddy the Elf theologist, don't worry, because there is one who meets us in the darkness, a bridegroom who comes to us and brings his light to us in the darkness if we are willing to even sit in the reality of that darkness so there's a there's this acknowledgement of our weariness it makes us candidates for grace the acknowledgement of weariness it makes us candidates for god's goodness god resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble and uh so this is the reality of our condition may we be humbled by that but let's move on there is fuel there is fuel that brings light to the darkness and this fuel this oil this is god's presence Oil has always been the imagery for uh, the presence of God. That's not a surprise to any of you who've been in church for any length of time. It's a metaphor. The oil has always been a metaphor for the presence of God, all through the Old Testament, or the anointing of God, the empowerment of God, the strength of God. We have Psalms like uh, where it says, like, "Oh, how good it is that the brothers and sisters would dwell together in a in a unity, the community of God in unity." For that unity is so rich, it's like the oil pouring down the beard of Aaron. What in the world? What? The, the presence of God anointing and strengthening. The one called to a priesthood. Now you and I are priests. Right? So this, this oil is the presence of God. In verse six, verses 6 and 7, in the middle of the darkness there is a cry. And the cry comes out in the, at midnight. And the wise women have this reserve to light their way. The wise women have this reserve of the presence of God. They, they, they slept, just like the foolish ones... No, nobody's, nobody's perfectly sanctified all the time. But when there was that cry, there is now reserve of the presence of God, of the very spirit of God, of being united to God. They have this resilience in the darkness. The foolish, of course, have no reservoir. There is nothing which, with, with which there's no fuel. There's, not, no, there's nothing available to them to which they can even respond Uh, To the bridegroom. And so the wise and the foolish women are this just tremendous picture for us to see ourselves as them. This great poetic image of wisdom and foolishness. And as you know, if you've been uh, here in the summer as we were going through some wisdom literature. that wisdom is always connected to worship. You cannot be a person of wisdom unless you are a person of worship. So inherently the wise women, these wise bridesmaids. Are those, are, they are women of worship. This is how we are to see us, as the bride of Christ. Going into this, into this, uh, this celebration feast. Well, in this parable, the bride is not mentioned. The, the, bride, the bridal party is, is used, but we see ourselves in the bridal party. Going into this tremendous uh, celebration as people of worship. So what we realize is that what Jesus is parsing apart here is, is that uh, we are going to be welcomed in on the basis of our relationship And not merely on the basis uh, of our activity. Because in verse 12, when they come knocking on the door, those foolish ones come knocking to come into the feast, Jesus says, I don't know you. And we already talked about this in a previous text in Matthew a week ago, when to know, uh, I mean, the Greek word in the previous text that we're referring to when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, that that know in the Greek is gnosko, which means uh, like an intimate knowing. Here, when he says to uh, the foolish ones, I depart, I don't know you. He doesn't use the same word, uh, gnosko. The original language is oiras. And Oeras is, could be would be literally translated, I don't see you. Very interesting use of language. It's pitch black in the ancient world. It's very dark. Hey, Jesus, let us in. And of course, in the darkness, Jesus says, I don't see you. But the seeing is not just merely like I don't, I don't visually observe you. It's in the same way that you and I would say, oh, I see what you're saying. Again, it's the knowledge. Again, it's this understanding that like, we're somehow united and that there's a relationship and a connectedness, connectedness in some way. And so you see the basis on which the foolish ones are rejected is because he's, he's like, I don't, I don't know who you are. It's a vivid image in the ancient world, a world with no electricity. Knock, knock, knock. You look out, and you're just peering into darkness. I don't know who you are. But these ones who have the presence of my light, these ones who know me, I look and I say, I see see you. So on what basis do we have the God of all heavens look at you and I at our lives and say, I see you? You see, it's it's the, the, the only way to garner the oil is it's costly. You know, we don't want to push the details too far. Some people have moralized this uh, this teaching by saying things like, "Well, the wise ones had it, and they said you got to go buy for yours. We're not going to have enough." And hey, wait a minute! Shouldn't the wise ones been more generous? What are we? Be-? We're breaking the parable down and. In- into minutia, It's not meant to go there. The point is, hey, this cost me something, and you've got to go and get your own oil. I can't just give you my oil. I can't give you my relationship. I can't give you my connectedness with God. You can't be connected to God via, my parents went to church and my grandparents planted the trees that built the, this is not connectedness. It's going to cost you. What's it going to cost you? Your throne. Constantly throughout all of Jesus' teaching, he's constantly talking about his kingdom throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and we've got to get down off the throne of our hearts. We've got to give a coronation ceremony to the king. We've got to welcome the bridegroom in. What does it cost us? It costs us our our autonomy as modern Westerns to say, I will be my own God. The problem, P.S., since Genesis 3, I've got to have this oil, and the only way to get the presence of God is by bending my knee. It's something that's received. In this, sense that in, in this sense, it is costly. It's going to cost me everything, but then in the end, I'm going to, of course, gain absolutely everything. And so, when we are tired and weary in the dark, we have to avail ourselves of the oil in the same way that these wise women availed themselves of the oil. And the means uh, by which th- that we do this, uh, it, by this refueling, is by having a rhythm in our lives of worship having a rhythm in our lives of turning to him. And so the, the, the reason why he says, oh, I know you, I know these ones, is obviously that's, that's just a conversation about time. Oh, I know you. Come on in. We've spent time together. I know you. If you've been I hope you've been a redeemer long enough to know that I'm not I, this is, sermon isn't going to take a turn into like living a life of you know loving good works by which you are known and this is the way that accept like it's not where it goes this is this is by grace and because we are saved by grace it produces a life of knowing of wanting of abiding of connecting of all the other things that Jesus is teaching all through Matthew by the time you get to the end in 25 year it's like we're connected in a very deep way, and this is going to give you the resilience you need in the darkness because the darkness is going to come. It's inevitably going to come because we live in a world of darkness. Some of you are in the darkness right now, some of you just came out of a season of tremendous darkness and you're thanking God. And, the, and, and then some of you are heading into a season of darkness because you live on planet Earth. And so, because this is true, we want to be children of resilience. Whereby we can acknowledge the darkness and be honest about it and call it what it is and turn to God and be desperate in that way and avail ourselves of the oil of the strength of His presence so that we do not uh, opt for a life of self sufficiency like the foolish uh, bridesmaids. The church has never survived on sentiment and nostalgia and optimism, it's always survived on true hope. So, this is not a parable about optimism. I know it's dark, but don't worry, the light's going to come. Stay positive. It's not optimism. It is hope. Sentiment and nostalgia and optimism are weak fuel for the soul. We need something stronger. And thankfully, we are offered something stronger, not optimism. The Christian faith is not built on that because that clings to the salvation of better circumstances. Whereas hope sustains us in the darkness, irrespective of the circumstances, irrespective of anything turning around... Christian hope in the darkness enables you and I to look straight into the horrors of this world straight into the horrors that we see on the news every day, we can look the horror and the darkness in the eye and say Jesus is Lord my hand is in the life, my my life is in the hands of my king I can call this darkness what it is and I will not be consumed by this I have the strength and the oil of his presence for this. He is with me in this. He is going to deliver me through this. Which leads us to the final thing, the light that pierces the darkness. In verse 10, we get this great poetry, this great image of coming out of darkness and into a feast. It goes from a terrifying scenario of not being able to see your hand in front of your face To laughing and eating and drinking with Jesus, and the feasting with Jesus is such a strong theme all through the New Testament. And eating and drinking with the King is is such a beautiful, strong theme all throughout Scripture. This is because the eating and drinking and the laughing with Jesus is this imagery of being welcomed in. It is a teaser trailer of the teleos of humanity. If we are not united to Christ, and we don't believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, where is all of human life headed? Darkness. Where is our life headed, united to Christ? The feasting, the life, the light, the glory of the teleology of the gospel, God's goal in the gospel. So in these four weeks of Advent, as we gather together in anticipation and celebration of the incarnation when God becomes man... Yes it is a historical celebration that the king has come but it is also this forward facing anticipation that he is coming again and what he is bringing when he comes again is the feast the renewal the renewal of this world that we deeply deeply crave the justice and the love and the kindness a life of joy without the brokenness of the sickness of our bodies. It is the, it is the utopia we seek after and our political endeavors that will always escape us because we are incapable of creating our own utopia. We are, in the words of Peter Hitchens, homeless utopians because we cannot create this world. We've never created it. We're more polarized than we've ever been. And that shouldn't make us negative and angry. As Christians, it should make us hopeful and generous because we already have a king. This is what his return is going to bring. This is the significance of it. This significance of the wedding feast all throughout scripture. The hopeful truth that in the end, the bridegroom comes, whose light and love has pierced our darkness. He has saved us from darkness. And he will, in the end, raise us from the grave, restore our bodies. We will be resurrected as he was, physically bodily. And that will be the end of all darkness. That is the gospel promise. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb, salvation, what we talk about, Christ dying for our sin and raising from death on the third day, that is the detonator for God's plan. God's plan is renewal. And the way to get us to renewal is the cross. To be united to the one who has defeated death. To be united to the one... So the confession, then, of, the, of us as believers, and for those of you who are exploring faith this morning, the confession is the honest confession of darkness. That if there is a God, and he has incarnated in Christ, and he is a per- picture of perfect holiness, and per- perfect righteousness, and kindness and justice... I pale in comparison to that. And if he is a good and just God, then his standard ought to be perfect. His standard not ought to be as low as mine. Therefore, I, it's incapable for me to live to his glory. And therefore, I need his grace. And therefore, Christ had come to provide that. That is the detonator that gets us to the end renewal, the purpose for which the light has come. And how did God do that? He did not do all that by remaining transcendent and untouched by darkness. He did it through the cross of Jesus Christ. He did it by coming into our darkness. At the cross, the sky turns to darkness. Jesus was enveloped in the darkness. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in darkness? And so now, as we head into this Christmas season, may we be like little kids on Christmas Eve who know something, even though we don't have it, but we know it's coming to us and it's just changed our whole vibe, my friend. Have you ever seen kids on Christmas Eve? Of course you have. Do you remember when you were a kid on Christmas Eve? Of course you do. There's something in you that's fundamentally changed because you know the gift is coming. You don't know what it is. You haven't seen it. You don't even have it yet. But it, you, it, it, is, it is assuredly, it's as though it's yours. And that sheer joy has changed you. And may the sheer joy of the gospel hope that we know we have be a reanimating force, a a rejuvenating force in the darkness, in the thickness of the darkness. We don't need to deny it and rename it. We can look straight at it because the glory of God as we've been united to the Son and indwelt by the Spirit, it means that the Father will now continue to do in us The work of his great light and through us the ministry of reconciliation as we leave this place like mobile temples as 200 lights going out into the darkness to love and to care and live uh, live lives of generosity and give a defense for the hope that we enjoy. That we're not just living some sort of positive, nihilistic, futile existence where we know that in the end nothing will exist and the sun will burn out and go supernova, and we know that a thousand years from now nothing we say matters actually matters, but let's just live like it does anyways and be kind on Monday. No, that's insanity. May we go out into the city and give a a defense for the hope that we truly enjoy, that this life truly is not that there is because we are united to the one who escaped the darkness, was raised from darkness, and we are with him. Let's pray.